The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And the entire Russian internet, sovereign internet law and the sovereign internet model is very much about maintaining control by the Kremlin of Russian citizens of the Russian territory. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 7th, 2021. Today, we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem. In the last few weeks, the Russian government has been turning up the heat on tech platforms in an escalation of long-standing efforts to bring the internet under its control. First, Russia forced Apple and Google to remove an app from their app stores that would have helped voters select non-Kremlin-backed candidates in the country's most recent parliamentary elections. Then, the government threatened to block YouTube within Russia if the platform refused to reinstate two German-language channels run by the state-backed outlet RT. And after we recorded this podcast, the Russian government announced that it would fine Facebook for not being quick enough in removing content that Russia identified as illegal. What's driving this latest offensive, and what does it mean for the future of the Russian internet? Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with Alina Polyakova, a familiar voice for longtime Arbiters of Truth listeners, and the president and CEO of the Center for European Policy Analysis, and Anastasia Zlobina, the coordinator for Europe and Central Asia at Human Rights Watch. They explained what this crackdown means for social media platforms whose Russian employees might soon be at risk, the legal structures behind the Russian government's actions, and what's motivating the Kremlin to extend its control over the internet. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 7th. Russia cracks down on social media. Elena and Anastasia, thank you so much for joining us. We wanted to talk about the latest salvos in the Russian government's efforts to kind of rein in the internet and social media platforms and the geopolitical context and the legal tools the government's using. This is happening on a lot of different fronts at once, uh, so we thought we'd take them one by one. Alina, first I wanted to turn to you. The first instance of censorship we wanted to talk about has to do with a successful demand by the Russian government for Google and Apple to remove a particular app from these companies' app stores. What kind of app is so threatening that the government needs to put pressure on these companies to stamp it out in Russia? Thanks so much, Quentin. I'm so glad that we're having this conversation because there's a lot to get into and unpack here uh, beyond the headlines that we've been seeing. And of course, the most recent headline has been that you know, Apple and Google have conceded to the Russian government demands to remove what is called the smart voting app. Uh, this is an app that was created by Alexei Navalny and his team. Alexei Navalny, as many probably know, is the Russian political opposition leader who was poisoned back uh, last year in August, then barely survived the poisoning in Germany and returned to Russia and was immediately arrested and now remains in jail to this day. And many of his supporters since then have also been forced to leave Russia, basically under threat of facing a similar fate of you know, basically indefinite detainment or imprisonment. So um, this is all happening. It's important to note now for a reason, or say a couple of weeks ago at this point. And that's because we just had the federal elections in Russia. 
Those took place a couple of weeks ago, uh, September 17th to the 19th. And the Kremlin was really preparing for these elections. And they really wanted things to go smoothly, meaning no protests, no demonstrations, uh, no agitation from the opposition. And this app became one of the factors that the government wanted to focus in on. So what the question is, what did this app do? Why was it so threatening? Well, when we think about it to a regime that we often talk about as being super centralized, authoritarian, even dictatorial in nature, uh, which obviously connotes all kinds of ideas about the ability of Moscow and the Russian government to control everything that's happening in the country. I think this example really shows how something, I think, relatively small by U.S. standards or any other democratic standards is perceived as a, as a profound threat. All this app really did was if you download it on your phone and you were voting in your local elections for your local district seat in the Russian Duma, the Russian parliament, um, it would give you potential candidates to vote for who were not United Russia Party candidates, meaning not the party selected candidates. And all it basically said was vote for anyone. Just don't vote for the Kremlin selected candidates with the United Russia Party, usually the United Russia Party. And the Kremlin saw this as so threatening that they forced Apple and Google uh, to remove the app. But I think it's really important to talk about why this happened and how we should think about the kind of moral dilemma that a lot of Western companies, including these big tech companies, you know, now find themselves in, in Russia. That's really helpful context. And I definitely want to get into that moral quandary because I think that a lot of the reporting in the West in particular represents this as a really simple black and white issue, but I'm not so convinced that's the case. But before we get to that specifically, I want to just sort of uh, maybe set up some more about the stakes of, of this issue. And a way to do that, I think, is um, some of the statements Navalny himself made uh, in the wake of the, the events, and um, in particular, a remarkable tweet thread that he had, where he said, if something surprised me in the latest elections, it was not how Putin forged the results, but how obediently the almighty big tech turned into his accomplices. And he decried his beloved YouTube uh, for taking down one of his videos. And just to quote a little bit more, because I think um, it's a good window into how angry he was. Um, it's one thing when the internet monopolists are ruled by cute, freedom-loving nerds with solid life principles. It's completely different when the people in charge of them are both cowardly and greedy. One of the modern challenges is that false prophets now come to us, not in sheep's clothing, but in hoodies and stretched jeans. So I, I think one of the things that's bringing up there is the importance of social media more generally in Russian society. And I was wondering if either of you could speak to that about um, why it is that social media is so important in this context beyond that specific app. Uh, and in particular, how free conversation is on, on social media on these Western apps, or whether it's just uh, people like Navalny, who are apparently pretty fearless and not scared of going to jail, who, who speak freely. You know, it's interesting, because of course, Navalny was very upset. And the reason he was upset is because YouTube in particular has been the key platform for him to reach Russians in Russia. Navalny has de facto been banned from being in any Russian government state-sponsored television channel or other media outlet. And the Russian government does control basically the entirety now of the media space uh, in Russia, with the exception of these Western platforms, really. And what we've seen over time is an effort to design and produce new kinds of platforms that could be an alternate to the Western platform. So for example, the Russian gas monopoly, yes, the Russian energy gas monopoly has its own version of YouTube, which they call RuTube, uh, where they're trying to kind of channel people to go to RuTube now versus YouTube. I don't that hasn't been too successful. But if we look at how Navalny has been able to develop some sort of presence, despite huge obstacles, not being able to reach people in more traditional ways, uh, constantly being harassed, arrested, poisoned, you know, thrown in jail, him and his entire organization being de facto declared a terrorist organization in Russia now. The only way they've been able to do that is through these Western channels. And YouTube in particular has really emerged as a powerful megaphone. Some months ago, Navalny put out a video detailing just absolutely breathtaking corruption by uh, Mr. Putin. It was called, uh, you know, Putin's Palace. And it described and showed images of this like, very, very like over the top, ridiculous castle palace that allegedly Putin has built for himself in, in Crimea. 
And this video, this documentary video, this expose got over 100 million views on YouTube. It is huge. It's huge uh, for someone like Navalny. And over time, because of these outlets, Navalny and his movement had uh, become more of household names than they ever could have could have been otherwise. And so for that reason, Navalny, of course, takes this as a huge hit. And it is, absolutely is a huge hit. But what the point I'm making is that if it wasn't for these Western, mostly U.S. outlets, not just U.S., we also have Telegram, which is actually a Russian app that has remained uh, present in Russia. And that's a super interesting case if you want to get into that. But the point is that these social media platforms that are not under the direct control of the Russian government have been the only avenue for freedom of expression and for Russian political voices that are not uh, the Kremlin and they're not part of the government to really get their message across. And that's why they're so important. Yeah, I absolutely agree with Alina. Uh, Clearly, the foreign social media platforms are really important for the users in Russia for expressing their thoughts and opinions that are alternative to or considered by the government as uh, dissenting. And for years now, the social media platforms, the boring ones, somehow managed to, you know, somehow managed to deal with this crackdown that they have been facing for a long time now, including being slammed with fines and uh, being threatened with uh, blockings and slowing down access to their services, etc., etc. And just as an example, you know, in winter when Navalny came back to Russia and like Alina mentioned, this movie was released people started mobilizing online in order to go to the streets and to show that they were not agreeing with uh, the government, supporting Navalny, and they were against the corruption. So this was the point when the government escalated the crackdown on the foreign social media platforms. Because the traditional ways of blocking the information of internet censorship that are available to them did not quite work with the social media platforms. And if anything, if there is any tendency we can draw throughout the history of the internet regulation in Russia is that the crackdown escalates around the important events, obviously, like Adina mentioned, be it the parliamentary elections or the overall dissent wave, something like that. So yeah, clearly the foreign social media platforms have always been very important for the Russian users, for their alternative opinion and expressing the alternative perspective. And uh, the recent incident with the smart voting app, of course, well, it led to a lot of frustration amongst Russian users for all the obvious reasons. Yeah, absolutely. So I do want to ask about the specific Russian state agency that is responsible for a lot of this censorship, which, and please correct me if I'm pronouncing it wrong, is called Roskomnadzor. So According to press reports, I understand that Roskomnadzor first told Apple and Google that the companies would be fined if they didn't remove the smart voting app from their stores. Then the agency told the company that they would prosecute employees of Apple and Google in Russia if the app was not removed. So Anastasia, what is Roskomnadzor and why does it have such power? Yeah, you say it perfectly right, uh, Roskomnadzor, and I'm very sorry if uh, that's the first word the audience learns in Russian, but uh, <laughs> Roskomnadzor. <laughs> uh, Roskomnadzor is the Federal Service for Supervision of Communications, Information Technology, and Mass Media. Hence, we prefer to call it Roskomnadzor just because it's shorter. So basically, this is a agency, state agency that was established a long time ago. But it has been increasingly overseen uh, the protection of personal data in Russia, as well as internet censorship and mass media. And, uh, you know, if we look at the history of censorship in Russia, then we see how the powers of uh, this agency have been increasing over the years. So from the blockings and from managing the lists of uh, IP addresses that should be blocked in Russia because they disseminate illegal content to now pretty much interpreting what this illegal content is and even directly blocking certain websites via this uh, technology, via the deep packet inspection technology, which is the part of the sovereign internet law package. If you look at the history of blockings in Russia, Roskomnadzor has been expanding its role in blockings and uh, in managing the internet overall, overseeing it. So now we see that they pretty much deemed Twitter recently as a threat, there is the sovereign internet law in Russia that basically introduced the concept of a threat 
to the Russian segment of the internet. Don't ask me what it means. It's really obscure and nobody clearly understands what it means, but Roskomnadzor, because they interpret it in the ways they want. And uh, as we saw with the example of Twitter and um, the access to the website being throttled, well, the traffic to the website being slowed down, this was exactly the case of Roskomnadzor's interpretation of what this threat could be. So now they pretty much have uh, the power to deem the information unwanted And they're also the point of contact to any kind of other state agency that wants to block information online. Uh, With regards to what you said about uh, law enforcement showing up in the offices and threatening with the prosecution, it could not be Roskomnadzor directly, but there is no no question about their role in blocking the information online and issuing these fines and decisions to block or to throttle, that's for sure. And one more question about this. So my understanding is that Roskomnadzor's reasoning in demanding the removal of the smart voting app traces back to June when a Moscow court designated Navalny's foundation, which is called in English the Anti-Corruption Foundation, as an extremist organization. And this is after the foundation was already declared to be a foreign agent in 2019. So my impression from reporting is that because the app was produced by the foundation and contained content from it, the argument by the government was that the app was therefore illegal. Could you walk us through the significance of the extremist organization and foreign agent designations? In Russia, there are quite a few mass media outlets that were deemed as foreign agents, which is one of the tools to prevent them from speaking out, uh, which requires them to basically label themselves as uh, foreign agents, as well as some uh, non-governmental organizations and even individuals, for instance, journalists, and to report. uh, There are some extra requirements for the financial reporting. However, it is possible to continue working as a foreign agent in Russia. But if the organization is deemed undesirable or extremist or terrorist in Russia, then it pretty much becomes a criminal offense to disseminate the information of these organizations. Here's what I find really important with the case of Navalny and the smart voting app. You're right. It was uh, Roskomnadzor requested that um, Apple and Google bans this app exactly because it is affiliated and produced by the organization that they had deemed extremist. And this just shows how important these laws are for the government. Basically, by deeming the organization extremist, it did not only make any product produced by this organization extremist and hence disseminating it a criminal offense. It also shifted the responsibility and the liability to the users. So after the organization was labeled as extremist, a lot of people started self-censoring, deleting posts they had on their social media accounts or even deleting the accounts altogether because they can be held liable for having something on their wall, you know, from years and years ago that links to Navalny's organization, quotes it without, uh, you know, mentioning that uh, it is a an extremist organization, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and I believe for social media companies, it also put the liability they were facing at a whole different level, and this is what allowed the authorities to threaten with the prosecution of uh, the employees in personal capacity. So it is truly an important step in the whole process of crackdown on Navalny's organizations. Yeah, it would be good to pause on this foreign agent designation just a a moment longer because it's another really interesting development in this space. And Anastasia, as you were just pointing out, it's much broader than just the Navalny app. It was used against many independent Russian media outlets like Medusa and TV Rain, where they were both named foreign agents. And my understanding is that that means uh, legally they're required to include this giant, almost comical disclaimer on their articles or posts on social media with extra large fonts in a bright color uh, saying that they're they're foreign agents. And it, it's, it's interesting because it is in some sense a mirror to a number of measures that have been taken against Russian media outlets, most prominently RT in other places. So Twitter uh, has started labeling uh, state media, both um, you know any country, and, and it does this a lot with Chinese media outlets as well. But one other sort of uh, interesting dynamic here is that the Russian government, when it you know 
enacts this and, and does these designation just points to the U.S. and U.S. Uh, Foreign Agents Registration Act, FARA, um, and says, look, we're just doing uh, the same thing that you're doing um, by requiring RT to, to register as a, a foreign agent. So, Alina, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on the genuineness, the good faith and the uh, actual um, equivalence between what Russia is doing here and what the U.S. government does and whether the actual practical effects of these labels and this law beyond just the labels on the free press within Russia. Right. So this is such an important issue because this is often one of the talking points that we hear from Kremlin officials and certainly from those who work for RT as well, including their editor-in-chief or the head of RT, who says that, look, you know, RT was declared a foreign agent and forced to register as a foreign agent, I should say, in the United States. So we're just doing the same thing here, you know, and you know, here we have our laws and our laws dictate X, Y, Z, which means these organizations, these media outlets, these Western groups are either foreign agents or now uh, the extremist label has become a much more uh, dominant one for Russian organizations. But I think we have to be very clear about what's happening here. Uh, what happens when any organization in the United States registers with FARA, under FARA, which is our, our law in the United States, which is very ambiguous. But all it is is a registration. So lobbyists have to do it. <laughs> they work on behalf of foreign governments and foreign entities to pursue their interests when they lobby Congress, other U.S. institutions. Basically, any organization that has an interest on behalf of a foreign entity has to register under FARA. That doesn't mean they can't do their work. It's just a registration. So RT has absolutely not been affected by its registration, it continues to broadcast in the United States. It continues to publish whatever it wants. Um, they don't have to put a big black, you know, label on themselves. They don't have to put anything in their Twitter tweets. And certainly, Twitter, I think, has also had a more universal policy. It's not that they're isolating RT. Uh, they have a policy now that basically says, well, we should let our readers and our users know uh, when some piece of content is coming from uh, a user or an entity that is actually state-funded, primarily state-funded. And they apply this across the board. As you said, it's not just about Russia, you know, Chinese media outlets, other media outlets are also labeled as such, but it doesn't restrict them from operating in any way. Of course, that is the complete opposite of what the Russian government is doing. When an organization is declared a, a foreign agent or even more extreme, an extremist group, that de facto destroys their ability to work for a couple of reasons. I think there's a one really depressing and draconian thing that the Russian government has done recently, which they've extended this label now, not just to organizations, but to individuals. So you basically become persona non grata. If you work with the organizations, have any connection to an organization that is a foreign agent or an extremist group, it's hard for you to probably get a job. It's hard for you to do anything. Certainly if you're an activist, like your life as an activist is basically done because you're being monitored online. Uh, you could get thrown in jail for a tweet or something that you post on Facebook, even something that you do on Telegram, which is supposed to be encrypted, but there's public elements of Telegram as well. It's kind of this hybrid thing, hybrid platform. So it's completely different. If you're labeled a foreign agent or an extremist organization or an individual, you know, that's it. You really de facto can no longer function in Russia. Uh, it makes it very difficult, even if you're outside of Russia, your organization's outside of Russia, to broadcast anything into Russia. The kind of language that you're required to put up, uh, let's say for your Twitter, every time you tweet something, you know, Twitter has a 280 character limit. This thing that you have to insert into every single tweet, I think is something like 270 characters or something like that. So that's it. You're, you're pretty much done. Um, doing anything or speaking out of anything. So I know that's maybe too detailed, but I think we have to be very clear that there's no equivalence here. And we shouldn't fall into the Russian narrative, the Russian government narrative, that these two things are the same because they're not. I think it's, a, it's important to draw the difference between being declared a foreign agent and an undesirable or an extremist organization. Alina, you're absolutely right. If you're deemed a foreign agent or an undesirable or an extremist uh, organization, it's very hard 
to uh, operate in Russia. The difference is for undesirables and the extremists or terrorist organizations, it's impossible to operate to do anything because continuing their activities would lead to a criminal case straight away and criminal liability straight away. For foreign agents, we have to still, well, uh, like you said, de facto, it's very difficult for them to operate in Russia. And if you violate the law on foreign agents uh, a few times, then it could lead eventually to the criminal liability as well. And for individuals, it's just a disaster. Some would have to publish their the reports on what they spend their money on and where they get their money from for you know anyone who wants to see it. So like basically online, which is terrible. And this is just to say that these laws, all of them are absolutely draconian and should not exist in a democratic state. And they prosecute individuals and organizations for simply doing their legitimate work or expressing their dissenting opinions, that's for sure. And so speaking of of criminal penalties, as I mentioned earlier, the New York Times reported that the Russian government informed Apple and Google that it would prosecute their in-country employees if uh, Navalny's app wasn't removed. And according to the Times, Google was even given the names of specific individuals who would face prosecution, which this reporting at least suggested was really what made the companies decide they needed to remove the app. Anastasia, is that kind of criminal case something that has happened before or is this a new development in an escalation? Well, first of all, I just wanted to say that uh, the companies have not yet published all the details about uh, this incident and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what is going to look like? But if we do believe the, you know, <laughs> New York Times, obviously a trustworthy source, then I believe that uh, the employees were most likely threatened exactly with the extremist charges in connection to the obviously smart voting app that is affiliated to Navalny's organizations. To my knowledge, it hasn't ever happened to the foreign social media platforms in Russia when you know law enforcement just shows up in your office and threatens with uh, the criminal prosecution. So I believe it is exactly the straw that broke the camel's back. It has been going on for years and years that crack down on social media platforms, on foreign social media platforms in Russia. But when digital turns turns into that physical kind of reaction, then I guess it is hard to, to react otherwise. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So, Alina, I want to turn to you and ask how much of this is real and how much of this is theatre. So... You know, this this idea of these hostage-taking laws uh, is sort of taking off around the world, which is where governments are requiring platforms to have employees and assets within the country uh, so that these threats can be made real if the platform does something that, that the government doesn't like. So this is happening in India, which most prominently just threatened a Twitter employee if uh, Twitter didn't remove some tweets. Um, but there's many, many governments that are turning to these kinds of threats. So Turkey, Brazil, Pakistan, Vietnam, you know, I could I could go on and on. I don't know if Russia has such a law as yet. I think one of the reasons why, and we might come back to this, Twitter could push back on some of the demands was because it doesn't have a physical presence within the country. But I'm curious as to how much of this Russia would actually follow through on, in your opinion, and where 
the US government is on this. Like it seems that when a foreign government is threatening the employees of a, an American company with with jail for what what we would consider uh, sticking up for free speech and freedom of expression, that might be something that the US government uh, would have a view on. Have they weighed in at all? And do you think Russia actually would follow through on this? And, and if they did, whether that might get the, the US government to um, pay more attention? I'm going to say something somewhat pessimistic now, uh, just just fair warning. You know, first of all, the U.S. government has been totally silent on these issues. Uh, we don't know if perhaps in private conversation there's a message being sent to Moscow saying, you know, these are U.S. companies and this is not okay. But my sense is that if that is happening, I don't think the Kremlin is paying too much attention. Uh, and that's because... It's also important to remember that a lot of times these companies, even though they're U.S. companies or European companies, what have you, hire local nationals to work in their offices in Russia or wherever. And these people are the ones that that are, of course, most vulnerable to these kinds of threats because they're Russian citizens. Uh, And so there's very little, I think, that the companies can actually do at the end of the day to protect them. Now, if there are U.S. citizens maybe there'll be a different story. And I would be surprised if the Kremlin went this far as to, let's say, follow up and throw a U.S. citizen employee of one of these companies in jail or prison. But they can certainly almost do whatever they want. They feel like they can do whatever they want if you are a Russian national. And I think that is very much the tact that they use, that these are, you know, here, we have these laws on the books we believe your employee is violating these laws. They're Russian citizens. They're subject to our laws. That's it. And there's going to be very little, I think, that the U.S. will say about it or will do about it. And I think to me, this has been probably the most uh, depressing part of all this, to be honest. Yes, we can all look at the headlines and say, you know, big tech has once again failed to protect free speech and they've capitulated as authoritarian state. But I think we have to remember that this hasn't this didn't come out of the blue. I mean, this kind of move to repress free speech on social media has been taking place, certainly in Russia and many other countries as well, for a very long time. In Russia, this really started at least a decade ago, and it's been this kind of slow creep. And this is where the slow creep has led us. And I think the biggest failure to me has not been that these companies, after fighting a lot with the Russian government, either delaying their compliance to these demands or paying fines, as Anastasia said, in in Russian courts when they weren't complying at all. You know, at this point, I think they were stuck in this really difficult position. Are they going to be responsible for their employees, some of them who may be Russian nationals, though we don't really know, but I assume that some of them are, being arrested, being harassed, uh, facing criminal prosecution? You know, there's not a lot of answers here. I think the biggest failure has been that the United States, that Europe, the entire democratic community has said absolutely nothing. And I think the reason for that is very clear, to be honest, is because it's just not politically popular to say anything in favor of, quote unquote, big tech. And I think we have to think about how we do both, you know, how we pursue some of the concerns on monopoly power and antitrust, which are very real concerns. But on the other hand, How do we also ensure that in countries that are increasingly authoritarian, that this open space remains while it's still there? Because there's nothing that the Kremlin will want more, absolutely nothing they want more than to have these companies say, that's it. We're not going to function in Russia anymore. We're out. We don't care. It's too much of a liability, too much of a risk. And if that happens, you know, that's kind of it for free expression in Russia in so many different ways. And I think that's the really depressing part here. Yeah, I just want to, um, as my tech friends would say, double click on that and totally agree. I think this is what we were referring to earlier, where a lot of the sort of Western discourse about this is, wow, can't believe these companies are caving to authoritarian demands. Where were their principles about free speech? But from their perspective, that really oversimplifies the trade-offs, not only for their employee safety, which, you know, you can understand whether or not the threats are real. You can understand why they'd want to be very risk averse about testing whether those threats are real and their very real obligations to the the safety of their employees, but also the trade-offs for freedom of expression aren't totally clear when, as you say, Alina, you know, the the entire platforms could be shut down within a country. And it sort of feels to me like we're asking these companies to solve what are essentially geopolitical problems 
without any backup from from the government. And it's not clear to me that, you know, Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg are the people that should be uh, deciding what to do about creeping authoritarianism around the world. Exactly. And if I can just chime in here really quick, Ellen, you're um, 100% right. And also, like, since when, since when did we think that profit-seeking companies are the beacons of freedom and democracy across the world? You know, if this was any other kind of industry, that not a tech industry or you know, social media platform industry, uh, if these were, you know, car manufacturers, Ford, you know, if Ford employees were being harassed and threatened um, in Russia, I can probably guess that the U.S. government have a problem with that. And that's because, you know, we have an entire agency, the U.S. Commerce Department and others, whose job it is to protect U.S. commercial interests across the world. But in this case, you know, we're simply not doing it. And I think that's because we're expecting so much from these companies when, in fact, you know, their primary focus is to make money. And it's not to be the beacons of democracy across the world. I just wanted to take a quick step back with regards to this uh, hostage taking laws. So I'm sure you might have heard that actually in Russia, they adopted a law on quote-unquote grounding of their ICT companies, requiring them to open the branch offices in Russia or face a ban to place advertisements on their platforms. And I think it's very important to mention this because the law has not even yet entered into force. It is set to enter into force in January, but we already see that the hostage-taking practice has just happened. And this is what it is going to look like in the future. And I understand that the tech companies already saw what this could result in if they decide to open a branch office in other countries, like in Turkey, for example. But I think this is a yet another illustration of what it's going to look like if they comply. Thank you for that clarification. So I want to turn now to Telegram, uh, which we mentioned earlier. So... Alina, I think, as you mentioned, uh, Telegram was founded in Russia. And after Apple and Google removed uh, the smart voting app, Navalny's team started sharing the names of recommended candidates over Telegram using a chatbot. But then Telegram announced it was taking down that account, which was particularly notable because Telegram has often been one of the platforms less amenable to content moderation and a few years ago refused to allow Russian authorities to access users' encrypted messages. So Telegram founder Pavel Durov posted a really fascinating statement on the platform saying he couldn't justify keeping Navalny's bot up without the support of Apple and Google. Uh, he didn't say anything about the threats to Telegram empl- or about any threats to Telegram employees. So it seems like he may have made the decision voluntarily. Anastasia, I wanted to turn to you on this because Durov wrote that Telegram had an obligation to shut down the chatbot because of a prohibition under Russian law and campaigning the day before voting, saying, uh, we consider this practice legitimate and urge Telegram users to respect it. What do you make of his citation to this? Is he right here or is he just sort of pointing to this as an excuse for caving? Yeah, (laughs) that sounds more like an excuse to me and to many people in Russia. Uh, With Telegram in particular, like Alina mentioned, the whole story is quite complicated. I guess it began in 2018 when, like you mentioned, the authorities came to Telegram asking for their encryption keys. And uh, Telegram, you know, (laughs) pretty fairly said that they did not have the encryption keys because of the way the platform worked. And the authorities tried to block uh, Telegram altogether in Russia. They did not succeed because of the way Telegram works, of its decentralized nature. The attempt to block it caused a lot of disruptions all across the Russian segment of the internet, and the authorities kind of ended up giving up on this. But uh, what is less public is that most likely Telegram had to somehow cooperate with authorities. Authorities, I think a year ago, decided to stop uh, blocking or attempting to block Telegram altogether claiming that uh, Telegram ended up cooperating with the government. For many Russian users, because Telegram uh, was refusing to give the encryption keys, they looked sort of like a beacon of, uh, you know, user privacy and the freedom of expression. Uh, But to me, it is not clear. And to many, it is also not clear what kind of relationship is there between Telegram and the Russian authorities. So unfortunately, it looks like this was just an excuse 
And it is even more concerning given everything that is happening with the foreign social media platforms. Look, Telegram, I think, has been such a interesting example of how a very small app, a very small company, relatively speaking, compared to the giants of Apple and Google, uh, has been able to outmaneuver the Russian government for many years now. You know, as you mentioned, Quinta, this battle that went on between Telegram and Roskomnadzor. At the end, Telegram basically won, but there was this kind of opaque I think a statement, if I'm not mistaken, that Roskomnadzor put out saying that Telegram uh, will be allowed to operate, but with the understanding that it will then help the Russian government uh, pursue any extremist threats. So this was uh, a bit of an allusion to what role Telegram might actually be playing now in cooperating with the Russian government in some ways. I mean, we don't know, to be clear. We don't know what's happening behind those doors. Uh, But I think clearly... Telegram being left out in the cold uh, to fight the battle again. They weren't prepared to do that. Uh, Maybe there has been some threats, uh, other kinds of deals that we don't know about, pressure campaigns, things of that nature uh, that have been lodged against Telegram by Roskomnadzor, maybe the Russian uh, intelligence agencies as well. Okay, so let's turn to another front of this crackdown by the Russian government on social media platforms. Another notable front or incident recently was Russia threatening to block YouTube in the country uh, unless YouTube restored to German language channels uh, produced by RT, which YouTube had shut down because they were spreading uh, COVID misinformation and YouTube was on high alert because uh, it was um, monitoring German language uh, materials, uh, especially closely in the lead up to the German election. And one of the ways in which this seems remarkable to me is that Russia is pressuring YouTube within Russia for a decision that it was making in another market entirely in Germany about content not spread within Russia, but content spread overseas. And so, you know, uh, countries seem to be getting more and more ambitious about the scope of their jurisdictional reach, I guess you might call it, as to the control that they want to exert over what is spread around the world. And I'm curious for either of your thoughts about uh, whether, you know, my reading of that is correct, that this is sort of an escalation or becoming more ambitious. And again, how real this threat is about shutting YouTube down entirely within the country. You're absolutely right. If you think about it, the demands of the authorities are very absurd. Uh, First of all, they quote the law that was adopted last winter that basically prohibits censoring the um, governmental mass media for for political reasons or because of the sanctions. And the point of the law was to, as they explain it, protect the right of Russian users to access the information and also to express the information freely, right? What kind of Russian users we're talking about when uh, we discuss the channel in Germany? It's quite unclear. Like you said, it's quite absurd. And also, if you Think about it. In Russia, spreading the false information about uh, coronavirus is actually a crime. It's a criminal offense. And a lot of activists were actually slammed with quite serious charges back in April when the first wave of the pandemic was going on in Russia. So I believe that this is one of the consequences of the fact that the Russian authorities see some kind of success in their actions with regards to the social media platforms, the porn ones. And I'm afraid that we're going to see more and more of such absurd requests in the future. Yeah, I would just really agree with everything that Anastasia has just said. And what you were alluding to earlier, uh, Evelyn and Quinta as well, that there's a precedent being set here. What's happening in Russia is not happening in a vacuum. Other countries are looking on and looking in to see what kind of response this increasingly draconian repressive censorship system uh, will garner and so far has been almost nothing or very light. And so I think to my mind, this is just the reality we live in today where we're going to see more and more governments using, and I think, you know, Anastasia alluded to just now, the the COVID pandemic has been a fantastic tool uh, for justifying uh, repression, justifying censorship or declaring some things, quote unquote, disinformation or 
being against public health or declaring states of emergency, which grants you know these powers to various governments and uh, entities, uh, but then never actually removing those kinds of expansive powers. So I think this is just going to keep getting worse. And I think we are losing, if not, maybe we've already lost the moment to respond, to make it clear this is absolutely not okay, then there will be some consequences. And again, I'm talking about the broader international community here, primarily Europe and the United States, who could do a lot more in this space. But I think we're in this really strange position where on the geopolitical level, obviously the United States is looking much more towards China and the Indo-Pacific. They're much less concerned with the Russia problem in many ways, Uh, despite what President Biden may have said. We haven't seen too many actions to deter Russia in, in all kinds of different ways or to even comment on what's happening in Russia domestically and what that will mean to the Russian people and what that will mean for democracy. Alina, one other question for you on this. The Russian foreign ministry released a truly bizarre statement suggesting uh, after the ban of these two YouTube channels that perhaps Russia should ban German state media in Russia saying uh, taking retaliatory symmetrical measures against the German media in Russia would seem not just an appropriate, but also a necessary thing to do. I have to be honest, I don't understand this at all. Like, Would Russia actually do this? Why would the Kremlin have interest in dragging the German government, which had nothing to do with any of this, into this? Just what is going on here? I don't know. <laughs> to be very, very honest, I don't get the statement that you just read out. I don't know what they get out of it. Um, I think sometimes we see uh, some of these uh, Russian agencies and Russian officials really go out on a limb and be super aggressive and overly aggressive uh, without much reason. And there's not a lot of follow through necessarily. I would be surprised if there was follow through. Obviously, the relationship with Europe and Germany in particular is really key for Russia. Elections just happened in Germany, which brought a new party uh, in power, the Social Democrats, which have traditionally been much more in favor of having a better relationship with the Kremlin. And we'll see what happens. But that has been their foreign policy for a very long time. And so I would be very surprised to see uh, this actually having any, you know, any sort of basis in reality. But I have to admit, I was kind of confused by that as well. Anastasia, do you have any answers? Unfortunately, not. (laughs) But I just wanted to comment that, Alina, I agree with you. Sometimes the statements of these agencies are quite bizarre and it is hard to explain them. But I believe that these kind of statements are more directed at the audience in Russia rather than to the outside world. And uh, the propaganda narrative has in relation to the social media platforms has been often that there are some uh, foreign governments behind their decisions, behind especially the decisions to filter the content produced by the pro-government channels. They might have as well believed what they were saying about uh, the influence of the foreign governments when it comes to this particular case, believing maybe that somehow German government has some had something to do with it. But I really believe that is it is mostly meant for the internal audience, just to show that you see our truth is being uh, banned in Germany, and probably Germany German government has something to do with that. So I want to ask what this outrage over YouTube is sort of meant to achieve on the Russian government's part. There's an article recently in the Washington Post by uh, journalists uh, Andrei Soldatov and Irina Borogan, who, Alina, I know your colleagues at SIPA, who are arguing that the effort to censor the Navalny app was part of a broader Kremlin project to, and I'm quoting here from their article, decouple the Russian and Russian internet, popularly known as the RUNET, from the rest of cyberspace, end quote. So I'm curious for both of your thoughts on what that means, first off, for our listeners, and whether this sort of contrived ruckus over German RT channels is part of that effort too. Like, is this part of a project to perhaps block YouTube within Russia and sort of force people to internal Russian YouTube alternatives? Alina, what do you think? Well, I have to say that uh, anything that Andre and, and Irina write, I tend to recommend to everyone because they're one of some of the few people out there who really get it on this on all these issues in, in a real way. So I, I read the article that, that you just mentioned, Quinta, and 
I think they're absolutely right. I think we often think that a lot of what's happening in Russia or really any other country has something to do with us in the United States or with the broader West, if we want to call it that. But really, it's just about the regime wanting to stay in power and trying to eliminate any potential threats. And over time, we've seen that those threats are being defined in much more microscopic ways. So no longer tolerating any sort of protest at all. I mean, protest is now basically illegal in Russia. And this has been a slow creep. You know, we cannot forget that this has been a slow creep that has taken a long time. And it's not over. And the entire Russian internet, sovereign internet law and the sovereign internet model is very much about maintaining control by the Kremlin of Russian citizens, of the Russian territory. It is much less about anything having to do with the West. And I think one of the key components here is that now Roskomnadzor and other agencies, because they've been building up not just their legal mandate, but also their technical capabilities over time, are able to separate information flows between different parts of Russia. And this is really key because, for example, um, they can block uh, a live stream potentially of a protest happening in Moscow that anyone can see, I don't know, in Buratia or the Far East in Vladivostok or wherever you have you. And so it's another way that the government is trying to control what kind of information Russians are able to have access to, what they're able to see, what do they believe about their countries. But it is important to remember, and I think here is where Andre is absolutely right, this is all about the domestic situation and having control over information flows inside of Russia, blocking information the regime sees as damaging to itself or as a threat to itself in any way. Um, and I think certainly, as I said before, they would love it, I meaning the Kremlin would love it, the Russian government would love it, if YouTube left Russia and if all Russians went to RuTube <laughs> um, and where the government could control everything they see on there. Um, so I think this is where this is heading, unfortunately. And I don't know how much longer Western companies will hold out, to be honest, without getting some sort of support from the governments um, in Europe and the United States. Stasia, I want to ask you about the role of law here. We've been talking about all these new laws and regulations that have been passed and these elaborate legal structures and regulatory regimes that the government is invoking to justify and as a framework for its actions and that the companies are pointing to as requiring uh, what they should or should not do. And I'm kind of wondering why. Like we're looking at some of these statements and some of these laws and they seem, you know, such obvious fig leaves and that they're such ridiculous theater in a way. And I'm wondering why the laws are necessary and what the government is trying to achieve by invoking legal structures. Is it something to do with the judiciary and, and getting uh, some sort of court sanction for its actions or something to do with, you know, how this operates on the global stage? Just really curious for your thoughts on why um, it's going through these legal processes? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. There is the whole raft of laws in relation to the foreign social media companies, as well as, you know, Russia-based ones. We have the law on data localization, on passing over the encryption keys to the law enforcement, and so on and so forth. Recently, social media platforms were obliged to take down the illegal content or otherwise face fi fines, etc., etc., etc. But and one more point before I switch to the next point. So not all, all of these uh, laws are being implemented, actually. Some of them are just adopted and they're laying there on the shelf uh, collecting the dust. And uh, someone remembers about them when the time comes. The time might never come. But uh, like I said earlier, there is a tendency of increasing the crackdown on the social media platforms when there is some kind of um, movement in the country, when there is some kind of dissent or the elections, like in the case of a smart voting app. So I guess the authorities on the one hand are experimenting with the tools that might work or not. They still cannot just go ahead and do whatever they want. They still need to at least create this illusion of uh, a law being properly adopted. And also another important point is that they have to explain this to the audience, you know, to the Russian internet users. Uh, in 2018, when the authorities were trying to block Telegram, people actually went on the streets and 
protested this decision. They didn't like that this was going to happen. So the government really has to come up uh, with a ways to explain why they are blocking or like throttling access to this or that resource. And um, first of all, I join Alina on saying that uh, one should read in everything they find written by Andrei and Irina. They're absolute experts. And um, they did a great work on uh, documenting them and basically analyzing the sovereign internet law. And uh, the important aspect of this law is that, like I said earlier, it introduces the concept of a threat. So the authorities use this concept to explain why they are coming after certain players in the Russian internet, in the Russian segment of the internet, because they still need to have an explanation and saying that Twitter is a threat because they are not deleting the posts that are calling for participation of children in protests that are not authorized by the authorities is one way of twisting it around. I wanted to close by asking both of you why we're seeing this escalation now. As you said, uh, Anastasia, you know, some of these laws have been sitting around for a while. Some of them are new. But between the shutting down of the app and this sort of maybe quixotic effort to get these YouTube channels reinstated, it really seems like the Russian government is sort of pushing forward into new ground when it comes to trying to gain control over the Internet. Like, why now? Alina, let's start with you. Well, I, I think this has been, again, a slow creep. And it's not like these laws all emerge at the same time over the the course of a couple months. This really started after the 2011 protests when Putin came back to power. If we remember, there was a short period where Putin became prime minister and then Benjamin Vini was president and Putin you know, comes back to the presidency in 2012. But this was uh, on the heels of these quite large protests that took place over the elections being not free and, and fraudulent. And that really, I think, was a wake-up call uh, to Putin, that if he wanted to remain in power, they had to get control of the information space because people were already starting to organize on social media then. They had to get control of uh, the entire country's ability to communicate with each other. And you know, Navalny and those around him, the, the local politicians, were tolerated uh, for a long time, actually, by Russian standards, I would say. But I think with Navalny now hoping to at least not run for presidency because he's not allowed to run for office in Russia, uh, but setting up all of these regional offices. This is what happened in the last few years, that Navalny's foundation left Moscow and St. Petersburg, and they started to mobilize across the country because their model has always been, if we get everyone to protest at the same time, meaning if it's just a fraction of Russia's you know, 140 million or so population, but it happens in the Far East, in the North, in the South, in Moscow and St. Petersburg, that the Russian government will not be able to control it. And they're right. They're absolutely right. And the Kremlin knows that. And so they have now completely destroyed the entire national infrastructure. They've destroyed their offices. They've destroyed, and now they're destroying their ability to communicate to the Russian public. So it's not so much a question to me of why now. I really think that this has been what they've been building to for many, many years. Um, and now they're flexing their muscle and testing new ground. Uh, but I think clearly what that signals to me is a deep anxiety within the Kremlin about its own stability, about Putin's ability to maintain control. Again, it's to me, it's not so much a why now. It's like, why did it take so long? <laughs> But also, you know, the way that we've seen Russian foreign policy develop over time is a bit of a testing the ground. Um, and this happens in the military domain as well as in the issues we're talking about here, where they'll push they'll push and push and they'll wait for a response. And if the response is weak or if there is no response, as has been the case here, meaning from the United States most primarily, then they know they can keep going. And, you know, Navalny's in jail. And I think we have forgotten about that already. And so for the Kremlin, this has been a very clear signal that, look, you have an open door. And yeah, maybe the, the U.S. and Europe will fuss here and there, but really they're more concerned about China. And let's keep it that way. Anastasia, you get the last word. I guess I'm just going to add on top of what Alina already said. I'm really glad that we're looking into these cases, namely the smart voting app 
deletion from the app stores and YouTube being pressured to restore the access to these accounts. Because in my opinion, it shows the two key pillars of the internet regulation in Russia, namely the censorship and the fact that um, the app stores had to take down the, the, this app is a clear act of censorship and propaganda, making sure that the information they want to be out there in the public domain remains out there. And I'm also really glad that we mentioned the sovereign internet law, because what it does, it builds the infrastructure for the direct management of the internet segment in Russia. So Alina is absolutely right. These two incidents did not come in isolation. They came as a result of uh, the longstanding crackdown on um, the freedom of uh, expression online and the right to access information freely and the freedom of assembly. And the case of uh, smart voting app in, in particular is even more concerning given this context and the history behind it because it sets a dangerous precedent. So in my opinion, it's just extremely important to keep paying attention to the situation around um, the internet freedoms in Russia and just hope for the best as we have always had. And um, I hope the audience will try to learn some other more beautiful words in Russian than Roskomnadzor. <laughs> and uh, we will need to forget this term one day and live in the era of free internet. All right. On that note, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Briggings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Hamza Shitu. Our producer is Jen Patya Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast on whatever app you use, and consider becoming a material supporter on Patreon at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll gain access to an ad-free version of this podcast and weekly events, along with other benefits. As always, thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.